This episode is part of the series Know Your Candidates. Conversations with City Council and Mayoral Candidates for the election of 2017 in the city of Holyoke, Massachusetts. The Radio Plasma podcast does not support or oppose any candidate for public office. This is a nonpartisan, independent media outlet dedicated to promoting a peace culture, embrace diversity, conversations, sharing of opinions and ideas, and ensure diverse voices are represented in our media. Welcome to the Radio Plasma podcast, a space dedicated to the exchange of ideas, conversations, stories, music, performances, and randomness. Listen at radioplasma.com. Also, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher. I'm your producer and host, Johan Rashi Vega, and this is our series, Know Your Candidates, conversations with the candidates for the election of 2017 in the city of Holyoke, Massachusetts. I want to welcome City Councilwoman for Ward 4, Josie Valentin. Hi, Josie. Thank you for being here with us and welcome. Thank you for having me. You are running unopposed. I am. The third time is a charm, I guess. But we want to have this conversation because even though there is no one in this, this opportunity to run for re-election as an opponent, there is still the challenge of the work that you have as a city councilor and also the challenges that our city is facing right now with changes and adapting to situations that are happening locally and outside of our local environment that are also concerning to us and important that we need to be prepared and take measures. So thank you for making the time and talk a little bit about what has been the work and what is to expect for your new term. Absolutely. So, you know, the first time I ran for this office, which was uh, the end of 2012, uh, it feels like it's been about 10 years, but I've really only been in office about four. And so I think when I look back and I take a look at what we've been able to accomplish in terms of constituent services, in terms of legislation that, that has been able to pass, but also conversations that have happened in city council chambers, it really does seem like much more than four years. I always see my role as someone who is bringing conversations to the table that perhaps others don't want to have or others don't think it may be as important. But I always like to look at the holistic approach of, you know, how can we improve our city in ways in which the community is involved, in which voices are being heard, and also ways in which we can be motivating others to speak up and to get involved. And I think that when we start looking at who's in office, who's involved, there are definitely groups that are not always at the forefront. You know, we want to make sure that the young folks are being involved, that they have a voice, that they're interested in what's going on. You know, when I, when I first ran and I was campaigning uh, in 2012, one of the first things that my wife and I picked up on as we were door knocking was that there were a lot of people that were really not familiar with what local government does. And so there's this educational piece that we have to do, which of course is not expected when you're an elected official, but it's something that it makes so much sense that it's part of the conversation. So I'm very proud of, of my wife for a couple of years ago starting a Politics 101 that was a community uh, education group where, you know, through donors and through people volunteering their time, she was able to do uh, eight sessions at a time of different 
topics regarding civic engagement, regarding what are elected officials, what do they do? Because it's not just about registering people to vote, right? It's about educating them on the process and how the impact of, of the decisions that we are making and how it really affects the community as a whole. So those are all kind of part of those pieces that now that I look back and I look at these last four years, I wouldn't have guessed that this was kind of all part of the mix, but it's way more than you know just constituent services and what happens in chambers. Possibly you are one of the busiest persons in the city. You are doing so much in terms of what is the role of a city councilor, but also as the role of your full-time job at Holy Community College. And on top of that, also as an activist and also as a connector and engaging to help and get connected with the community. How do you feel after these four years of getting all these additional tasks and mm -hmm. duties that you are taking upon yourself in your work as educator, as community member, as a city councilor, and how this keeps you motivated to continue the work for this uh, new term? Well, you know, the first thing is that I, I feel that if I didn't have the support that I have of my family and friends, then it would be very difficult to do this. So I'm extremely grateful, extremely lucky to have a spouse who backs me up in, in whatever I want to do, and many times is also a participant in terms of, of these activities or events that we get involved with. The second piece is that, you know, the fact that I work at Holyoke Community College and I've had the honor of being there for 11 years, That has given me, you know, already an introduction to the community of Holyoke in a very different way. And so 11 years at HCC and then the last four of those 11 being in this role as a city councilor, I think the fact that those hats are interchangeable so often kind of makes it a more kind of organic process, right? So sometimes I always joke, you know, I may be at the supermarket picking up something and I bump into a student and I'm talking in, you know, whatever aisle eight about academic advising and then I go to the produce section and I find a constituent and I'm talking about, you know, a pothole on their street. So um, it's that, that flexibility and that interchangeable uh, hats that we have in these different roles as community leaders, as role models, as people who we hope, you know, we are inspiring others to get involved, to speak up, to, you know, see what they can do to, to participate actively. I think that all of these collaborations in terms of our different roles have been really helpful. So knowing that, that we have an opportunity to impact others, to push people out of their comfort zones and, and make them Uh, realize that it is important that they participate in different things, which, you know, obviously, obviously everyone's comfort level is going to be different. But at the end of the day, you know, if you can look back and say, you know, I spoke at this event or I spoke to this group of young people and one or two people came up to me at the end and said, you know, I had never really thought about running for office, but after hearing, you know, what you have to say and what you've been able to get involved with, I'm much more interested. That to me is, is what makes it all worth it. So sometimes, of course, it's tiring. We take a lot of vacations and, and that's something where, you know, we always try to refresh ourselves and recharge our batteries and we're grateful that we have the opportunity of doing that. But also the fact that volunteering and helping others is something that is already about self-care, right? And, and feeling good about yourself and feeling good about how you can help others and, and motivate others to get involved too. So I think it's a combination of all of that. The recent events, um, the unfortunate 
tragedies that Puerto Rico is living right now after the stroke of two hurricanes is showing the true colors of the federal government. And right now, it is the community, it is the people who is taking care of the people. You have been doing an exemplar work of volunteering and inspiring people to help and find ways to make the help available. And I believe this should be another example for others in the government to follow because it's about being thoughtful, it's about caring, it's about being human. How has it been for you right now the, the role of organizing and getting all these packages sent to Puerto Rico as a way to help the community and especially getting the support from many others here in the city? Yeah, it's, it's really been a beautiful, amazing, unexpected process. That's the best way I can summarize it. So, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I um, were, we were actually, we had left a, a staff meeting at the college for student services, which is, you know, the, the department that we both work at, at HEC under. And, um, you know, there was this conversation of kind of like, what can we do right now? What can we do that has an impact? And so her and I, started having this conversation and, and this idea came up of, you know, why don't we do, why don't we do care packages and, and, and how do we figure this out? And so um, it's been about two weeks, two and a half weeks since then. And uh, the idea was simple. The idea was if you want to help, you can do it in two ways. You can donate products that will be sent to Puerto Rico, items that are very specific, canned goods, toiletries, toilet paper, mosquito repellent, Um, batteries, flashlights, you know, things that the island is struggling with right now because a lot of the economy on the island at this point, even four weeks after Maria hit, is cash only. And there are stores throughout the island, supermarkets, that still have empty shelves because distributors have not been able to move the product throughout the island. The issues with gas and diesel, the fact that we saw all of these systems just crumble in front of our eyes when the media chose to cover it, because that was not always the case. And so we started looking at, we started having conversations with our family and friends on the island saying, what do you need the most and what can you not find? And so this list came up and we said, if you want to give donations for products, we'll accept that at the porch of our house. If you want to give money to pay towards the shipment of these so that we can do priority mail flat rate boxes that are $18.85 up to 70 pounds, then do that. So, you know, somebody shows up, gives a $20 bill, there goes one box. Somebody shows up with a bag of items on this uh, list that we had. And so all of a sudden there was one care package that was put together. So two weeks later, we had ended up uh, sending 185 care packages. These went to many different cities and towns on the island. The way that we planned it was that we would only send these to home addresses of folks that had confirmed that they were receiving mail. And they had also offered to distribute whatever they received for themselves and neighbors. So this was all people to people, no organizations, no red tape, no agencies, nothing in between. And it worked. We did 185 of them. We were able to, in two weeks, collect $6,000. We used 3,500 of that to pay for uh, the shipment of the boxes. It was 3,487, I believe, the correct number. And then we used a little bit to purchase some supplies that we were short on. And what we have left, which at this point, 
after a $500 donation that we received last night from students at Hampshire College as part of the Intro to Social Entrepreneurship class with Daniel Ross, um, they actually, you know, they left $500 at my house. And um, so that has now brought us up to a $3,000 cash balance, which could still continue to grow. And that we are going to bring with us in person to the nonprofit organizations that are doing the work on the ground since the day after Maria hit the island. One of the uh, organizations that we've identified throughout this, and I've had conversations with our executive director, is called Proyecto Matria. It's in Caguas. And uh, they have done an amazing job to distribute provisions, to offer services and resources and referrals. And they, you know, before Maria, they were primarily involved with working with uh, women and domestic violence victims and women who are, you know, the heads of household. And of course, now, after the, the tragedies of Maria, their role has really expanded. And so it's just been amazing to have these collaborations with people that are doing the work on the ground that we know are going to use this, uh, these resources the best they can. So that's where we're at right now. And um, it's, you know, we documented all of it on social media and we did a tutorial video. And last time I checked, it had 1,600 views so that people could know how they could make these care packages and it's been re it's being replicated in different communities of you know where there's diaspora puertorriqueña throughout the nation um, and it's just been really beautiful to witness and very humbling the reason we are including this on this conversation it is because the the big number of puerto rican residents in the city of holyoke that are being affected by this catastrophic experience and I mean experience not only because of the hurricane, but also the afterward as the the ways of the federal government on saying they're doing the, the job. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, depending on who you speak to and uh, what their role is, you will hear people that will say that the government has done a good job, both inside the island and at the federal level responding to this. And then many others, which are those of us who have been following this very closely, who even before Maria, we were looking at the impact of La Junta de Control Fiscal, uh, when we look at the debt uh, that the island is looking at and how there's still to this day conversations where we continue to push for how can we make sure that elected officials at the federal level are seeing the seriousness of all of this, are seeing that there needs to be conversation about forgiving and eliminating the debt that the island is in, that La Junta de Control Fiscal is completely depleting the island, that this is a crisis, and it was a crisis before Maria, and Maria just completely exacerbated that. And so we are in a place right now where three and a half million U.S. citizens living on the island of Puerto Rico are being treated as second-class citizens. There is no doubt in my mind about that. I will say that anywhere I go. Do I feel appreciative of the support and the help and the assistance that the island has received in any way, shape, or form? Absolutely. But anywhere that you look at the media coverage, there's talk about how the diaspora has really stepped up to make sure that, you know, through private donations, through our own ways of collaborating and networking and the communication channels, you know, we are getting things to the people that the media continues to show us are still needs. 
for the island four weeks later. So it's going to be a very long recovery process. And in the middle of this conversation, we also need to look at how all of this is going to impact cities and towns in the United States, such as Holyoke, which have very high percentages of Puerto Ricans already. And so we are seeing that influx here. Um, I was just speaking to Betty Medina from Enlace de Familias last night at a fundraiser at Gateway City Arts, which was great. And uh, she was telling me there was a day last week that just in one day, Enlace de Familias met with 42 people. So look at the numbers that we are experiencing, and it's still only four weeks out. You know, we still have people who are struggling to find plane tickets to leave the island. So the numbers are real. The impact is real. You know, at Holyoke Community College, we know that um, a lot of these college students that are not going to be able to finish their semester in Puerto Rico for many different reasons will end up here. And so we need to have protocols in place. We need to have a support system in place. And we need to realize that this is two pieces that we're looking at, what's happening on the island and what's happening to those who are able to leave or choose to leave. And that brings us back to our local environment here in the city and what are the challenges that you see right now, especially with this new setup of being prepared to receive this influx of Puerto Ricans here to the city and also the surrounding areas in the Pioneer Valley? What do you see as the most important challenges as a city councilor to take care of in your new term? So, you know, from the, from the state level, we've received the message loud and clear that uh, for Holyoke and Springfield, based on the number of, of Puerto Ricans in both of these communities, the governor's office has determined and established that there is a welcome center at each of these cities. And so here in Holyoke, the, the official welcome center for folks arriving from the island is in Lasa de Familias on Main Street with, like I said, Executive Director Betty Medina in charge of the initiatives there. And then for Springfield, it's uh, New North Citizens Council, which has been doing work in the community for the last 40 years. So clearly, if we're getting the message from the governor's office saying we need to have these specific welcome centers uh, for these folks, it's because they know that the need is there, that the reality is that these numbers are probably going to continue to increase. What are the struggles and what are the, you know, the challenges? I think you know, even before all of this, we are looking at the limits of, of resources that we have in these communities in terms of, you know, these folks come in and the needs are obviously tremendous. It's housing, it's health care, it's, you know, if they have specific uh, needs based on mental health or disabilities or, you know, and, and making sure that that folks are able to get these connections and these resources as soon as possible because we already have to think that for the last four weeks, they have not had what they need. And so when someone comes in and they say, you know, I, I landed two days ago at Bradley Airport and I'm diabetic and I've run out of insulin, right? It's, you can't just kind of say, oh, here you go, you know, here's the supply for you. I mean, it has to be an effective system that is in place, which, I mean, Holyoke Health Center has been phenomenal. Uh, Jay Brynas, the director there, um, has been a partner in this since day one. And so, you know, making sure that resources like this are available, you know, of course, one of the challenges, the folks who are already here have some of these same challenges. And so we're adding to that the fact that some of these uh, folks that are coming from the island are coming with absolutely no type of financial security, no savings. 
They're looking for jobs. They're looking for housing. They're looking for health care. They're looking for assistance with, you know, child care, with being able to help the family members that have to stay behind. I mean, the, the complications are just absolutely never-ending. And so I think this is a perfect scenario where this really needs to be all hands on deck. I think that if we were looking at a, a situation like this where folks were coming from any state, right? I mean, if this happened, who knows if after the wildfires in California, there's a huge exodus, right? And, and we don't, because people have lost their homes and we don't know where these families are going to end up. So I think that when we look at services and what we provide and the support that we have to offer, we have to look at it as these are our brothers and sisters, they are in need, and all hands need to be on deck because this is, it's a, it's a humanitarian crisis and it's serious and it's going to be a very long process. Change is coming to the city council because, well, there will be less members, mm -hmm. therefore more work, and whoever ends up has to step up to the game. How do you see the needs for change? What do you think it will be the ideal scenario for a city council to work efficiently with the challenges that this city has right now? Well, you know, I think, as you mentioned, the, you know, the number is going to reduce. So that's a big change. We're going from 15 to 13, because in the last election, there was a ballot question to reduce the number of at-large councillors from eight to six, and that question did pass. So right now, there's 10 people running for six seats, so we know for a fact that four of those folks will be eliminated. So those six that are left will be charged with the work of being at-large counselors for the whole city of Holyoke. And this is, of course, in addition to the seven ward counselors. You know, for me, I think that that's obviously a significant change, but also a big change that's going to happen is that since uh, the city council, you know, for the last couple of decades, really, there's only been two city council presidents, uh, Joe McGivern, who was the president for decades, and uh, Kevin Jourdain, who's been the president, um, I believe, for the last six years. And so at this point, whoever is going to be that next city council president, I think really has an opportunity to work on what is the message of what we want the city council to be. What do we want it to mean for community members? How do we want the environment to be within chambers and outside of chambers? How do we want the perception to be in terms of how community members are welcome in chambers? What is the tone? What are the priorities? So this is going to be, I think, a good opportunity for us to look at what do we want to see in our city leadership at this level. Because the reality is that, you know, we have a mayor, we have 13 city councilors as of obviously November 7th. We have a city treasurer, we have a clerk, right? Everyone kind of has their roles. But at the end of the day, I think it's important to take a look at what do we want our complete message to be? How, you know, how do people feel coming into chambers? How do people feel coming into city hall? Is it a welcoming environment? Is it an area that people can feel that everyone is able to be included in conversations. And I think that will also dictate what is the tone of our community as a whole. And not only feel welcome, feel respected. And I bring this because the perception is that respect is lacking in the way sometimes the communication is addressed within the own city councilors and towards the public. 
And I think, you know, it's an opportunity for all of us to take a look at what our roles are, what is the message that we are sharing when we are communicating to members of of the community, member of the public. And also, we have to see what are we doing with our power, because uh, the reality is that Right? Power and authority are always kind of tricky subjects when you look at, at different personalities, when you look at people's intentions, when you look at uh, what are the motives, what are the, you know, what are the priorities. And so I think this is a, a great opportunity for us to, to look at where we are, to look at where we want to be, and see what is the message that we really want to convey to our community. Because we have to remember there's a lot of good people in this city. There's a lot of people that are doing good work. And we need to make sure that we are not stepping on those folks and saying, you know what, what's important to you is really not important in the big picture. So don't, you know, don't waste my time. And I think that that has been the message many times that folks have have felt. It's been verbalized, you know, to me from some of my constituents that they feel that sometimes when they come into City Hall, they, they do not feel welcome. They are not felt uh, in a way that their feedback and their input is valued. And so I, I think that's, that's an important thing to look at because we need reassurance, we need validity, we need, that, we need to know that we're looking to grow this community together, that we're looking to see, you know, how can we be inclusive, how can, how can we be welcoming, and just in general terms, you know, what do we want people to think of Holyoke when they, when they talk about our city? Um, do we want to be known as, as a community that is welcoming, or do we want to be known as a community that is not really open to hearing from folks that, you know, that have varying points of view? You know, what is the, the popular answer and what is not? And so um, there's a lot of dynamics to look at. And this isn't just, you know, City Hall. I mean, obviously, you know, what do our schools look like? What are the conversations happening there? What are the conversations not happening there? Um, And knowing that at the end of the day, we have to be paying attention to our message as a community uh, for ourselves and for others that are coming into the city as visitors or prospective new residents. For your constituents in Ward 4, what will be the expectations and the challenges that you are committed to work for in this new term? So for me, you know, these last four years, um, I've, I've always pride myself in being very accessible and available uh, to my constituents. They, they know how to reach me, and they do. Um, and they always, you know, the feedback that I get the most is, you do your homework, you listen, even if we don't agree on something, you know, you respect what I'm saying, how I'm saying it. And, you know, those are things that are really valuable to me because it means that even if at the end of the day we're not going to agree on an issue, uh, we have heard each other respectfully, we have, you know, looked at the pros and cons, we have learned from each other, and that's not always easy to do. And so I think that the fact that I've made myself, you know, I've made it really a point to be accessible, approachable, open, listener, you know, all of these qualities that I wish every elected official had, I think that that it's a value to my work here. And and I think that the constituents really do appreciate that. So I feel that 
when you're doing the work consistently, then when it comes time for campaign, campaign season, it's like you're always campaigning anyways if you're doing the work. So um, I'm very lucky to, to feel that that is, that is the case for me. I, I'm always priding myself in, in the fact that, that my constituents are appreciative of, of the work that I do and the conversations that we have are not always easy, but at the end of the day, they, the, the feedback I keep getting is, you know, you did your homework and I value that and, and thank you for being a good listener and for putting yourself out there and, and doing this work because it's not easy. Any last remarks that you have for the public? No, just uh, again, I want to thank you for having me. I you know, appreciate that we have this resource here in the city of Holyoke through Radio Plasma so that folks can you know, be able to, to hear uh, what some of the, the issues are in our community, the good and the bad, and, and make sure that, that we can continue to work together to make our community as strong as we can. City Councilor for Ward 4, Josie Valentin, is here with us in the series Know Your Candidates. Josie, thank you so much for your work, for your time, for your energy, for your commitment, and that strong heart and love for the people. Thank it's, you so much. It's an inspiration, and you are ready to start a new term, and you know this space is always open for you to come back and keep addressing whatever issues we need to discuss and talk. As you mentioned, having this conversation and the opportunities to exchange points of view, to learn from each other, and find common grounds, even if sometimes there is no agreement in those conversations. Absolutely. Gracias. Thank you to Josie Valentin for her time in this interview as part of the series Know Your Candidates, conversations with uh, candidates for the election of 2017 in the city of Holyoke, Massachusetts. And this is the Radio Plasma podcast. This episode was recorded and produced at the Plasma Media Lab here in the Gandhara Youth Development Center in Holyoke, Mass. I'm your producer and host, Johan Rashi Vega. Thank you for listening. <laughs>